a Podcast One production. Welcome to The Alternative Truth, a series where we debunk the myths and spin on health and wellbeing. Hi, my name's Mailing Dory, a lifestyle curious medical doctor, public health expert, and strategist. One thing I've learned is that what we think is right when it comes to health often isn't. So I've set out to talk with some of the world's most esteemed medical experts and frontline wellbeing innovators to find out the alternative truth. In this conversation recorded in October 2020, months into the COVID-19 global pandemic, we wanted to address the question of where to from here? In a previous episode, we talked about vaccines and the fact that even if an effective vaccine is found, living with rather than eliminating COVID-19 is our collective reality. So how might we reinstate something that resembles normal life? Is contact tracing the key? To answer this, we sit down with two experts from the field, Dr. Hui Tat Mark Chan, a clinical microbiologist who has been on the front line of COVID-19 testing here in Australia, and then Dr. Mukesh Harkawal, general practitioner former state and national president of the Australian Medical Association and lead clinician at one of Victoria's major COVID-19 testing sites in Altona North. Our first guest, Dr. Hui Tat Mark Chan, is a medical specialist in clinical microbiology. He has a special interest in infectious disease risks, particularly from a systems perspective. He's also very interested in the clinical industry interface. His public, private and not-for-profit appointments have included former national lead in the Infectious Diseases and Microbiology Service at the Australian Red Cross Blood Service. He's a member of the Donor Tissue Bank of Victoria Committee, advisor to the TGA and also to several local medtech startups. Let's loop to the responses. You've you've described this thing as being significant because of the excess deaths, particularly Mm. in the 25 to 44-year-olds who are Hispanic and Latino, and we could in, we, in America, in yeah, America, yeah. And, and that's not yeah. necessarily a global phenomenon. But in terms yeah. of when you look at how governments have responded, has it been appropriate? Well, there's, for example, China done very well, Hong Kong done very well, uh, Taiwan done very well, uh, Korea done reasonably well, and uh, there's there's a lot of countries who've done quite well. Um, and why? <laughs> Well, my next question. I think that is an interesting question. Uh, so one, it is a community problem. It's not just a health problem. And, and countries who are on places who have a total mobilization mindset and approach tends to do quite well. So um, China is always used as an example as an authoritarian government. And yes, it is authoritarian government that do a lot of things that uh, can cannot quotation mark cannot do uh, in a in a liberal democratic society. But you look into Taiwan, their response are actually very invasive as well. So no one talk about actually how Taiwan were using actually telephone signals to track um, people as well. And so one of their responses is to to triangulate um, uh, where you are using your phone. And they know where you are uh, when you're supposed to be home quarantine. They track your phone. If your phone signal disappear, or that if your phone signal hasn't moved for a long time, they call you. Police are going to your 
uh, your apartment and say, where are you? <laughs> so th those are all uh, very well uh, reported in the news. But so that like that kind of responses, uh, it basically is quite invasive, um, but it, it brings into the so, uh, a whole responsibility of the society um, and that they... Uh, everyone feel that they have have a, a role to play, and uh, it's almost. But we we Australians have this as well. The mateship. I mean, we are the, the diggers. You no, know? I mean we should be saying we're looking after out for each other. We are all diggers on the field. We should think about um, how to defend our our territory, which is our home. We stay at home and to to help people. Two of the things that have been really prominent locally are the failure of contact tracing, and our you know, the impact of our lockdowns. Could you comment on, you know, is contact tracing the key? Because there is no vaccine available right now and we've already been in lockdown for 33 weeks. Yeah. How do we go, where do we go from here? And, you know, is has that been just a, a clumsy response? Well, I'll, I'll put something a bit controversial out there to think about uh, how systems approach. I mean, I, I'm a system person, and that's why I always talk about systems. So the content tracing is very important, but, you, it, it, but it is how you, put, you, def, uh, you devise and you work on the system. So again, as I said before, you, you, we, we have acknowledged that this thing is real. It, it kills people or causes death whether it kills people directly or not, all right? And then you, you we have a, a and they, the virus transmits to other people, so you cannot say that it doesn't transmit, all right? And there's only certain ways that we can do to stop transmission. It's either that uh, you you have, uh, you don't talk, see each other, uh, so or you when you see each other, you wear a mask, a uh, very good mask. Um, and so if you don't see each other, so it's social distancing that is uh, locked down. Or in, a, in the other side of coin is that you can actually pretend if you can have a system that allows you to trace every single case, all right, then you actually theoretically doesn't need lockdown. And you can even argue that if you, if you have um, uh, a system that can preemptively check every single case, uh, uh, symptomatic or asymptomatic, all right, then you actually does not... And, quarantine those people who are um, implicated, then you actually can have no lockdown. So for example, say everyone in, uh, in Australia have to have a test every single day, all right? A very sensitive test that will pick up a minute amount of virus, all right? And then you have a system that say, like, like say the Taiwan system or the China, China system that track every single day, all right? And then you say one day I become I test positive in him on my and then um, they and then the government knows about it and so they go okay who has connected uh, Mark in the past um, twenty four hours or forty eight hours we will quarantine those people and who are those people who are quarantined we also quarantine their contacts all right so you can actually have a society which essentially having pretty much life as normal but only going for a very targeted approach and quite aggressive approach in quarantining of the case, the contact, and the contact of the contact. You can actually potentially devise a system like that. And that's kind of what China is doing. And I would imagine what Taiwan is also doing as well. In short, I'm going to just cut to the point here. If we had done or borrowed the technology that China has used, could we have avoided all these lockdowns? 
Well, I would think that the lockdown initially is important when you have a seven hundred something cases like a day. You 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 just cannot quarantine the the ring of the I mean the contact of the contact. But it now it is time to think about whether we should use those technologies in in China and in in Taiwan, um, in other places that have been successfully um, used their technology to clamp down and basically slap the the uh, clusters uh, very early in the bud. Um, and yeah, I, I think that those are, this is exactly the time that we should talk about how we can use um, the experiences and the technology from other places for our benefit. From what you've seen, do we have anything on the? Do we have anything like that available to us? Is there anything on the horizon from where you sit at the center of contact trace or the center of testing? Well, testing again, like there's a lot of talks about testing. Uh, we need to have uh, uh, a mass amount of testing uh, that we need to consider point of care testing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But for me, it's like um, again, those uh, countries and places that I have mentioned. Uh, never really used uh, any point of care testing, but in just using normal um, a kind of testing, but have done a lot of them, I still managed to able to um, just explain to us the difference between point of care testing and normal testing. Oh yeah, the normal testing are done in a laboratory. You get a you get yep. a test, a, a swab in, um, in in, and then you send it to the laboratory. A point of care testing is, for example, you can do it at home. Or you can do it uh, in the in your local GP um, uh, service, and that the the test is the result is more readily available within say uh, fifteen minutes or or or, and, or two hours, for example. Um, and while for the uh, normal normal testing is usually the the turnaround time is uh, twenty four hours usually uh, at best at this time. So. Again, like the the observation that I have is that say in Korea, uh, in China, in China, um, they have a testing kiosk on, on the streets in Beijing. So rather than cafe kiosks, they have testing kiosks. People will walk past the street and go, "Yeah, I'll get tested." All right, and then they will they will get tested, and then their 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 uh, test will be sent to a central laboratory and get um, uh, examined. And then the result, uh, uh, is, I think, it's actually pushed to their um, their health code app. So, so those kind of uh, things can be utilized and, and think about how we can um, uh, use that. Uh, some places are advocating for point of care testing, uh, but those tests come with a lot of issues in terms of uh, sensitivity issues. But also um, that uh, it is the the quality management has been a problem. But more importantly, I can get a test done, say, from a pharmacy. All right, but if I'm I'm positive, I don't need to tell anyone. I can still go to work, right? <laughs> so, and so the actually having a centrally managed test have that uh, important overlay of having a, gov- a governance structure that the government or some authority knows about that you are positive and do accordingly stuff. Because if like in our experience in Melbourne, like we know that around twenty percent of people test positive and still. Did not follow the quarantine rule for all sorts of reasons. But if I uh, if I got foot I got a problem of putting foot on the table, I will go to work if I'm feeling quite alright, even though I'm tested positive. And so those are the and if you get a positive test on a point of care testing, I would go, oh yeah, but I need to go and work to feed my family. So that 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 kind of and that's why again I go back again and again. It is not a health issue; it's a community response issue. You 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 can't you can't just go. So uh, everyone will do, assume that they will do the quotation mark right thing. 
because the quotation mark right thing is not the, the thing that is done for every single people. I mean, we are all privileged to sit here and talk about stuff, but there are definitely people in the society who are needing food to be put on every day. Uh, and if you can't look after those people um, in, in a way that is that they are being looked after, then nothing is going to work. So again, a very interesting thing from China uh, in some of the provinces is that they actually give you, if you get tested positive, the government gives you bonus money. They say, I give you 2,000 bucks if you get tested positive. So those are the things that you like, kind of say, okay, uh, it's very useful, but, and how can we put all these ideas together to have a community-based response that cover all sort of facets of the um, uh, society uh, and to think about um, how to use different kind of technologies to solve not just the COVID problem, but the related societal problem. So for example, mental health or uh, so, uh, the, the social distance that we are now having is affecting a lot of people. Um, and for I have a personal story about this. Like my mom is in Hong Kong. Uh, um, I used to look, go fly over there and look after her every few months. And we, I'm doing that because she has a d d dementia and she doesn't listen to anyone, only listen to me. So for me, uh, a virtual room will be very, very useful. Like say I, I can switch on a, a projector at home and then have a, have a camera that is projecting her room onto her end. And then the same is pro uh, for my room to be projected to her in her living room. And it, she can see me, I can see her, I can talk to her directly. It's, I mean, those kind of technology is kind of available already, but there's no product out there. And like something like that will really help for people like me and people who have mental health issues or just people feel lonely, et cetera, to at least partly solve some of those uh, social isolation problems. And it will definitely help with the mental health and help with the excess death or also excess uh, morbidities as well. Mark, you have given us a very thought-provoking overview of the COVID situation globally and landed us on a number of, I think, further questions, including how are we going to innovate and allocate resources I wish we could go on. We've run out of time, mm. but I did want to say <laughs> thank you so much for um, joining us today on The Alternative Truth. Thank you very much for inviting me. Very happy to be here. Thinking about the exchange with Mark, I found it hard to get past the data he presented from the CDC and what it said about excess deaths. At the time of this podcast, there was a very clear and unsettling correlation between COVID-19 morbidity, mortality, and social inequality mediated risk. What was also clear is the chasm between how some countries have navigated the same disease. It left me asking, what does all this tell us about how governments select, frame, and apply evidence? Or our collective values? Why have some countries toggled freedom and health outcomes so effectively, and others, arguably, made such poor trade-offs. What is it going to take to transform what we've learned to build a better system overall? On this, let's talk with someone who's been at the COVID-19 testing coalface in the community. Dr. Mikesh Harkawal-Ao is a luminary from the Australian medical community. In his own words, the government's scared of me. I know too much. His career is defined by service and peppered with accolades at every stage. His work has seen him become the state national president of the Australian Medical Association and Chair of the Council of the World Medical Association. 
He's a professor in the School of Medicine at Flinders University, works with Brain Injury Australia, and chairs the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare. Previously, he spearheaded clinical and community efforts to use technology in health and worked for the state and federal health committees, including the National Health and Hospitals Reform Commission. He has a multitude of awards, including the AMA Gold Medal and the President's Award and Fellowship of the AMA. The chance to sit down with him for a frank and fearless discussion in the wake of this global pandemic was a real treat. I wanted to start by inviting you, I guess, to make a comment on the state of play when it comes to COVID-19. What do you see? Look, I think when we look at the situation here in Victoria, um, it all started relatively tamely in late January, February. Um, we could see the writing on the wall and started to make our own environment safe. We started having these conversations across the community about social distancing, uh, hand washing. But what was really interesting is we were actually spurning people from and uh, saying them not to wear a mask. And I think if you look back in history on that time, that will probably be seen as a bit of a mistake, a big mistake. Uh, then we actually went into a relative lull, I guess, because the rest of the world was burning and we had very relative, relatively few cases in Victoria um, uh, until we got into the, the uh, uh, hotel uh, outbreaks um, and then the breakouts from the hotel uh, outbreaks, which, of course, were catastrophic in, in Victoria. Um, and, of course, aged care was the other issue. Um, in our own personal experience, we run a respiratory disease uh, testing uh, and, and, and uh, care clinic, um, and we've seen uh, practice, uh, patients from practices in the neighbouring areas. About 175 practices now uh, have patients sent to us. Um, and um, from April when we started till the 2nd of July, we had zero cases. And that's despite set, testing several thousand in that time. From the 2nd of July till now, we've now had 104 cases. Um, and uh, they came in in in, uh, in uh, clusters, not all sort of smoothly across that time. Um, and what we found was we actually isolated certain amounts of uh, disease burden in our community. And we, the GPs in the area, worked together with the local council and uh, a very good team in Department of Health and Human Services to engage with uh, as a group and tackle this problem as a local issue. Uh, uh, municipality by municipality within the local government area. Um, and we had to do it twice, um, and we've done it uh, very collaboratively and, I would say, successfully um, as part of the, the statewide strategy of suppressing. So what we've seen is um, uh, the spike come up in July, uh, the worst day of being uh, 725 cases, um, and um, that's when we saw... Uh, the big stick come out. We went into curfew. We went into lockdown to five kilometres. Uh, all the shops pretty much were shut. Um, and we could only leave the house for four reasons. And you had to have permits to travel within your own city. Um, that's gradually been lifted. Um, uh, and there's, there's a slow uh, lifting of various restrictions and reintroduction of uh, freedoms to travel more. Um, and I think that was a very uh, strong, stringent uh, direction by the Department of Premier and Cabinet and the Premier's Office and the Premier 
And I think uh, in the circumstances, that was really very wise. And we've seen the benefits of that with the last few days seeing, you know, three cases, zero cases, one case, two cases. Um, and that's really gratifying. Uh, but we're not out of the woods yet. That was going to be my next question. You're no stranger to government and you've just made comment about how that strong decision has had a positive effect. Do you think that the trajectory of our COVID journey could have been better? Um, you know, it depends what, you, what your comparator is. If your comparator is um, Brazil or the US, then no. If your comparator is Europe, well, it looked like we were doing all right. Um, but, you know, the um, number of cases in, in, in Britain, for instance, has gone up dramatically. Um, uh, 12,000, 12, I believe, in Italy today. So unfortunately, their uptick has become problematic. And so us comparing with them, there's not much point. But compared to the rest of Australia, um, I think we were just unlucky to be the first uh, area to see a surge. Um, and uh, our response uh, from the Premier uh, was very um, strong and um, targeted and I think uh, has seen good results. Was it luck, though, because New South Wales had Ruby Princess, yeah. okay, and we we arguably didn't have Ruby Princess. We didn't have a bunch of infected people walk off a boat. Yeah. But well, we found ourselves... Ruby Princess, many people went overseas and unfortunately many of them died. That's true. Um you know, and I, I, I think that uh, our hotel quarantine, at least people you knew where they ended up going to, so you could follow up on that. But nonetheless, there, there were major lessons that hopefully will come out of the inquiry from that. But I don't think, you know, five years, 10 years, 25 years worth of engagement with the Department of Health and Human Services, whichever form it has been in that time, has seen the necessary change the necessary change is working with all providers of care in the community, the GP specialists, the non-GP specialists uh, working in their private rooms, the allied health professional providers working outside of hospitals and community health centres. They've not really been brought into the tent. Um, we are all Victorians. We are looking after Victorians. We are treating Victorians. And we employ lots of Victorians. Um, and for some reason, uh, they can't bring it upon themselves to bring us as community providers into the tent. And you're missing a great potential, a great potential of workforce, a great potential of service, a great potential of care, and most importantly, expertise and relationships with patients. So 80% of, of, of uh, patients in Australia will have a GP. Um, and the relationship is very strong uh, and is very personal. Um, and you can get through barriers you otherwise would not get to when you're coming from a Department of Health where you're seen as being an authoritative figure um, and people are not comfortable or don't feel safe to level with you about what's going on. What's your read on that? What, why is there the Department of Health issuing their top-down plans and not connecting with primary care? I guess it's the way they've always done it and I guess they've got away with it because we've not had COVID before. Um, we've had outbreaks, you know, we had SARS, didn't really hit us that badly. We had MERS, didn't really hit us that badly. We had bird flu, which didn't do the damage that was expected. We had swine flu, and that was nothing like as lethal as um, COVID. What's this disconnect costing us? What's the price of... The cost of disconnect is immeasurable. 
It means hospitals don't bother to talk to GPs. It means the health department doesn't bother to tell GPs in an area where there's three abattoirs all infected significantly with COVID. Oh, and by the way, you're running a COVID um, uh, testing centre as part of your respiratory clinic, that this is happening. So you're going to the situation blind, wondering why all these people are coming to you all of a sudden from an abattoir, um, why all these people are coming from um, a college um, where th th they live locally, but the college is uh, 20 kilometres away and they've all come down and you don't even know about it. Um, you, you know, you're not able to give a good steer to your patients because you're getting a bum steer. So all that adds up. It adds up in human life. It adds up in human um, uh, human poor experience. It adds up financially because you're, you know, not duplicating but going up four or sixfold in revisiting things that you should have sorted out the first time you went in to do contact tracing, to give advice, um, and to give people the right the right steer so they could then leave them alone. Let's talk about contact tracing. What happened? Um, well, the whole public health wonk within the Department of Health and Human Services was gutted over time. So I've said in the public space that the whole department was dumbed down. So the really good people were there, weren't there anymore. There seems to be some belief that you can outsource everything, um, you know, like security in hotels, for instance. Um, and that's not necessarily a good idea. Um, and so the capacity within the public health service was pretty poor. And they were used to dealing with, you know, two dozen cases of syphilis a year and, and uh, you know, you just needed a small spreadsheet. You can get away with it. Um, and they certainly weren't ready for this level of assault. So nobody could be ready for what was just happened to us. You know, we were caned with 729 cases. Imagine if we got 12,000 cases a day, as they've done in, uh, in Italy. Um, so what happened? You didn't know if somebody was getting a test where they got the test, who did the test, where the result went to, what the result was. As a GP, your patient's coming to you and saying, I've been tested. And you as a GP said, I have no idea where to get your results from. So the whole result process was a disaster and still is. Um, and then if it's positive, um, getting information about that case into the department, you stick 45 minutes on the phone, 45 minutes on the phone to talk to someone about it because you had to do it and then you didn't know what happened. And then if one family had several cases, and this is all documented on, uh, in, in, in the media, we've, we've had our patients talk to, patient, to journalists about their experiences. You know, one family, five cases, same household, different engagement by different people, several times a day with different messages. Uh, just ludicrous. You know, some, one guy said to me, you know, the military truck came out, Today, for me, came yesterday to see my daughter. And I said to them, are you going to come tomorrow to see my son? Just, you know, not thinking as a patient, as, a, as a, someone who's already stressed to the, to, the, out, to the eyeballs because of all of the concerns that COVID brings with it, rightly so, by the way, and not getting a decent steer and then worrying about doing the wrong thing. And not being able to do the right thing because you don't know what the right thing is because you're getting different advice. So who's driving the bus here? I don't think the bus is being driven by anybody. I mean, um, we've seen this in the in the inquiry. Everyone's saying, you know, they went that away. Um, and I think that's that's just a ludicrous situation. Um, you need to have very strong governance. What's what? Who's who? Who's doing what? 
who's responsible. You need to have one team looking after one patient, not multiple teams. And if the house, if the team, if the if the patient is the household, one team for the household. It's ludicrous having multiple people involved in the same household, and multiple people from the same team necessarily may potentially giving different messages. How did this all come to be, though? I I, I don't know. I'm just un, unfathoming. I can't get to the bottom of it myself. I'm trying to unpick my way through this. Work with good people that are actually making a difference and moving ahead despite them, not because of it. You know, there was a time that you still can't use the word asymptomatic testing. It's a dirty word. You must not do asymptomatic testing. Hello, people who are asymptomatic, 20% of people with COVID are asymptomatic. Also, many of the contacts of those people, direct contacts, will be asymptomatic. So, of course, we're doing asymptomatic testing. Um, and I've said, you know, you know, I am going to be calling those people in and their relatives and friends to be tested. Put me in jail if you want to, because we can't wait three days or four days or seven days for you to get to where you're going to get to and say, oh, we should have called those people in. Guess what? Every day that person will see more people and then those people will see more people. And the whole thing mushrooms in the numbers of cases if you don't get to the, the root of it immediately. And that's why we had to do our own processes, not ignoring, not working away from the health department, because that's where the law is, says you have to go, and we do. But despite of them carrying on to get this information into the hands of people so they get themselves tested um, and know, know to isolate and getting support for them to isolate. I'm going to ask you a potentially contentious question. From what you describe, there is the real potential for preventable harm here. There is a real potential for someone to contract COVID, die from COVID in a way that's preventable, given how leaky the system you describe is. Is there a is there scope for a wrongful death claim here? But I've said from day one, the whole agenda around COVID needs proper governance, including medical legal support. We haven't got to the stage as they have in the US, but in the US we will see cases where someone who has got COVID and has been put on a ventilator may have to be taken off a ventilator for somebody else, and therefore that person would otherwise have survived. And there is no protection for the person who is charged with making that decision. So the whole medical legal nightmare around that side of things. And that goes away, that's way down the, the line from where you're speaking of, where someone is been given a bum steer about cases in their area, doesn't know that there's cases in a school. And this is in the, in the, you can look this up in the age, it's been written up by someone saying that he was not able to give the right advice because he wasn't given the advice that there were cases. And so people were going back into the schoolyard who were COVID positive because they were told that there wasn't any COVID. So, you know, how the legal eagles put up that, I'm sure they'll have their field day. I've got a question for you in terms of the safety of the approach, given what you, you've witnessed and what you're continuing to witness. Is there, from your perspective, anything happening that gives you some confidence that we're on the right track to returning to a new normal or a COVID normal? The first thing is our numbers are low. So that's a really good place to be starting from. And we've got lessons from what's happened in, in, in July, for instance, and we've got to nail those. That includes a proper testing scheme 
a proper scheme for understanding where results are, a proper scheme for getting results into the hands of patients and their doctors um, when they're negative. That's really important. And an ongoing testing scheme for testing people to make sure we don't miss spikes from happening. And so that's that's a point uh, for uh, confidence. The confidence comes from the stand-up testing centres that were, were stood up uh, along the shopping centres and so on. Um, it comes from uh, some of the services where people can get tested in their household. And it comes from the fabulous Commonwealth government scheme of respiratory clinics where GPs are empowered to do testing um, and do it well. Uh, and we've got that written up by the University of Melbourne, and that's available to see there as well. So that's, you, you know, one part of it. The test and tracing, I can only hope, I can only hope that those lessons are learned. I can only hope that the local public health units that are mooted actually walk the walk and talk the talk of working as a community group with GPs. Uh, four weeks into that process, I haven't had a single phone call from my local LPHU, despite the fact that I sit on a um, uh, steering committee for this. Not a steering committee, I beg your pardon, an expert advisory group. So I hope it comes through. I remain to be convinced it will come through. So among the things you've raised, what do you think our greatest, or you know, as a community, what are our greatest lessons so far between masks, contact tracing, distancing, testing, quarantine? What does a good system look like? Um, where we are uh, for at least six months, maybe 12 months, we have to assume COVID is going to be with us. Even if there's a vaccine and it's developed and it's proven to be safe and is rolled out, by the time we get those vaccine doses into Australia, we're looking at nine to 12 months uh, if we're lucky. And then we don't know just how long the protection will last from those vaccines and so on. But best case scenario, you get the vaccine. Uh, we use GP services who are known and trusted to provide vaccination services. We have uh, accreditation of general practices with a very variable um, uh, supply chain, cold chain for the vaccines. And we immunised double the number of flus this season already very well. And we should be absolutely preparing general practices to vaccinate the vast majority of people that need vaccines when that happens. That's got to be nailed now, even before the vaccine's out there. Then we've got to make sure that people understand how to stay safe. And it's not just throwaway lines about washing your hands. It's about washing your hands, sure, but sanitising. Sanitising each time you adjust your mask, each time you touch a surface, each time you've done your shopping. You know, don't inadvertently rub your eyes. Don't inadvertently put your fingers in your mouth. Don't inadvertently put your fingers up your nose without rubbing your hand wash into there. Um, and there's some fantastic um, uh, efforts by companies uh, to provide uh, sanita sanitary, sanitation for hands, which otherwise wouldn't have been available. Um, then keep your distance. But you know what? That's not going to be enough. Um, make sure you've got a mask on. So in sort of bringing this all to a nub, I'm going to ask you, this is your chance to let loose. What absolutely must stop? From everything you've seen at every level of government and out in the community, what do we need to stop doing? 
we've got to stop beating about the bush and we've got to take a grip. We've got to make sure there is a proper governance process to the whole system from testing to getting results, from contact tracing to isolation. Uh, you've got to make sure that it's all clear who's doing what. It's got to be absolutely driven uh, in this state from our Premier and the Premier's department uh, and the Premier's office. Um, I think you've got to have each of the other pieces, pieces of jigsaw understanding who does what, but you've got to work local and be governed centrally. You've got to work local because it's more flexible, it's more um, uh, uh, nimble, and you're going to get things happening quickly if you work locally. You've got to put your ego at the door and work with all the people, so the GP specialists, the non-GP medical specialists, the uh, allied health people working in offices outside of hospitals. Yes, you've got to work with hospitals, but the hospitals have got to work with the community providers who provide a massive capacity and a massive expertise and a massive will and wish to do things and do it better. You've got to stop blaming somebody else. You've got to take responsibility for your own peace, but you do that by knowing what the governance is, what the ethical, ethical framework is, so that you can get the job done properly, effectively, sensibly, and making sure that people who are um, in this process are supported to do their work properly, not keep coming up against barriers. Their patients are treated as individuals um, and as precious members of our community and not pilloried and uh, um, stigmatised. We've got to make sure that if somebody happens to be unfortunate enough to get COVID, that they are supported in that process, that the um, the um, testing is done properly, the uh, tracing of uh, and, and follow-up is done properly, and that there's a working with the GPs who will not just be there for the 14 days of isolation. They've been there for 20 years before that, and they'll be there for at least 20 years after that. And you've got to work with them to make sure that this is done properly. And you know what? It's not just about the testing for the COVID. When you get COVID and you end up in ICU, that's one outcome. But if you've had COVID and you are unwell, that can go on for weeks, months, and potentially years afterwards with long COVID as the side, as the side effects, if you like, the, 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 the long-term effects come to the fore. Um, you know, uh, kidney disease, kidney failure, heart disease and heart failure. Um, getting into problems with, with uh, uh, people getting fitting and so on. It's a massive, massive lot of things that are happening out there. So the last message I want to invite you to deliver is to the vast majority of people that will be listening in, which is the walking well. Most of us have been lucky enough to evade this. What's your message to us looking ahead and, you know, looking at life with COVID given that it's, it ain't going anywhere fast? My message is we can do this. We can do this really well, but we mustn't uh, slack on this. We, we mustn't drop the ball. So we've been lucky in Victoria, funnily enough, not as lucky as New South Wales or, or South Australia, but we've been lucky. Um, we've dodged, dodged many bullets. Let's make sure that we keep ourselves safe so we don't have to dodge the bullets. 
but prepare for it. So the words are universal precautions. So if you're going anywhere, assume anybody in front of you has got COVID and work with that. Dr. Mukesh Harkawal, thank you so much for making the time to speak to us. You've dropped a number of pearls, several truths, and some useful tips on the way out. Thank you. Thank you very much. The chance to host a conversation with Dr. Mark Chan and Dr. Mukesh Harkawal highlighted the frustration and the toll of the pandemic on our frontline clinicians. Unlike previous episodes, I felt there was a strong thematic agreement between Mark and Mukesh about where we need to go from here. For one, the disconnect between those with relevant clinical and or frontline community insight and the people making policy decisions must be bridged. What I took away from our discussion is that our best possibility for a return to something that resembles normal life really means an evolution in our system and our approach. It left me with a bunch of questions. Namely, what does social contract really mean in the face of a pandemic? How will we cultivate common ways to coordinate while distributing power? More pointedly, how are we going to move in and potentially back out of crisis mode every time there's a spike, whilst enjoying some modicum of joy about our lives? And among all this, how can we sustain ourselves psychologically in the face of all of it? Here's to brighter days ahead. In the meantime, thanks for joining us on The Alternative Truth. Alternative Truth is recorded in the studios of Podcast One Australia. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. The producer is Sarah Greenberg. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au. 